0: new season out on Spotify
1: soon. From the mind of weird fiction author H.P. Lovecraft comes Cthulhu, a cosmic entity of almost unimaginable scale and power. If you enjoyed today's episode on this ancient alien Goliath and want to hear more stories of awesome and terrible monsters, follow Mythical Monsters, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. A warning, this episode features dramatizations and discussions of racial discrimination, human sacrifice, and mutilation. Listener discretion is advised, especially for listeners under 13. Something to note, the story you're about to hear is not a direct retelling of any single myth about Cthulhu. Today's episode combines elements from a number of stories about this alien behemoth for dramatic effect. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. You're listening to Mythical Monsters, a ParCast original. Every week, we delve into the legendary creatures that have captivated the human mind for centuries. These monsters provide a window into how our ancestors saw the world around them. We hope that by examining the myths of the past, we can better understand the hopes, dreams, and fears that drive humanity today. Last week, we looked at the myth of the changeling. These strange children were substituted for human babies who were kidnapped by malevolent fairies. Stories about changelings are terrifying parables about the fear of not knowing your own family. If you haven't already heard that episode, it's definitely worth a listen. Today we're discussing Cthulhu, an ancient alien Goliath who sleeps at the bottom of the ocean awaiting the day when he will rise again to destroy humanity. In the years since the story of Cthulhu was first published, the creature has entered into our cultural consciousness as a symbol of cosmic horror. It's a unique topic for the show in that Cthulhu is a very recent creation by mythology standards, and he isn't a deity that has ever been legitimately worshipped as a god. But nevertheless, the Cthulhu Mythos speaks to our own insignificance in the face of the incomprehensible scale of the universe. All episodes of Mythical Monsters and other ParCast Originals are available for free on Spotify. An ancient alien being larger than any creature that has ever existed on Earth, Cthulhu is one of the Great Old Ones. These are a race of powerful alien deities who once ruled the Earth, but have since fallen into a death-like sleep. From this state of suspended animation, they await the day when they will rise up to destroy the human race and resume control of our world. Cthulhu and the other Great Old Ones were first introduced in H.P. Lovecraft's short story, Call of Cthulhu. Though the Cthulhu mythos and the godlike creature have become ubiquitous, the man who created them lived and died in impoverished obscurity. Howard Phillips Lovecraft was born in Providence, Rhode Island in 1890. He was a reclusive young man plagued by bouts of depression. Just before his high school graduation, he suffered a nervous breakdown and retreated from the world entirely. Lovecraft would spend the next five years in a severe, depressive episode. During this period, he gave up on his lifelong dream of becoming an astronomer and turned instead to writing. His genre of choice was a blend of horror and sci-fi that would come to be known as weird fiction. Lovecraft's appetite for writing eventually helped to pull him out of a near-vegetative state. In 1924, he would move to New York and go on to write some of the seminal works of the weird fiction movement. It's impossible to talk about Lovecraft without acknowledging the vitriolic racism that pervaded his work and life. The xenophobia in Lovecraft's writing is often explicitly expressed as a ravening condemnation of anyone who's different from him in race, gender, religion, or sexual orientation. Some have made the argument that Lovecraft's intolerance is a product of his time, but the frenetic pitch of his racist sentiments speaks to a bigotry that was deeply embedded in Lovecraft's psyche. Some scholars, like literary editor Leslie Klinger, see Lovecraft's racism as a driving engine for his fiction. Like many xenophobes, Lovecraft's fears were an expression of his own anxieties and self-loathing. It's notable that Lovecraft wrote during a time of great upheaval in the American social system, the same decade that saw the publication of The Call of Cthulhu, also saw women's suffrage, the introduction of the Equal Rights Amendment, and the Harlem Renaissance. The structures of power that had privileged men like him for centuries were beginning to crack. In the bustling immigrant hub of 1900's New York City, Lovecraft felt surrounded by a sea of unfamiliarity. He created the monsters of his fiction as a representation of the others he was so afraid of. Cthulhu served as an expression of the smallness that Lovecraft felt against a vast universe in conflict with him. Henry stared in awe at the city around him. He'd never seen anything that was at once so compelling and so horrifically unnatural. The great stone buildings were covered in a layer of greenish muck. They towered over him in a confounding jumble of odd spherical shapes that made it impossible to know the difference between up and down. It was as though the city had been built with some kind of strange alien geometry. A grim fascination compelled Henry forward. It was as though he were tied to an invisible wire that pulled him through the dim city. He was headed towards the enormous temple rising up from the center of the metropolis. He could hear the sound of distant chanting. Gradually, he began to make out words being repeated by a chorus of hysterical voices. Ia, Ia, Cthulhu Fhtagn, Ia, Ia, Cthulhu Fhtagn. Finally, he stood in front of the massive temple two enormous stone slabs towered above him. They were at least 10 stories tall, and each was carved with violent scenes of slaughter and gargantuan hieroglyphs. Henry instinctively moved backwards when he heard the ear-piercing shriek of ancient gears turning for the first time in millennia. The slabs were opening. Henry caught a gust of stale air and nearly vomited from the stench. He'd never smelled anything like it. It was the putrid odor of a thousand corpses, suspended in an eternal state of rot. From deep inside the building, Henry could hear a wet, slobbering sound accompanied by thundering footsteps. He felt a pit of dread growing in his stomach. He backed away, but could not tear his eyes from the thing that emerged. Its size was incomprehensible. It had to crouch low in order to fit through the door. As it rose to its full height, Henry saw that this being did not exist on the scale of any earthly creature. Its eyes were burning red coals set into a bulbous protrusion, like the body of an octopus, Where its mouth should have been, a tangle of writhing tentacles hung down like some kind of hideous beard. A pair of leathery wings spread from its muscular back, and each of its dripping green fins ended in five talons, larger than the mast of a ship. The thing turned its gaze on Henry, and he began to scream. Henry woke in a cold sweat. The earth underneath him was violently shaking, and for a moment he wondered if he was still in the dream. Then everything was still again. Henry realized with some degree of relief that he had just experienced an earthquake. He looked around and was surprised to find himself seated at the potter's wheel in his studio, He saw that his hands were covered in red clay and heard the sound of a gas jet hissing. When he looked over at the kiln, he noticed that someone had turned it on. Had he done that in his sleep? He must have. The studio was located behind his house and he was the only one who had access to it. Henry stood stiffly and went to turn off the kiln. He waited a minute and then cracked open the door of the little oven. Sitting on one of the wire shelves was a clay statue. It was small and lacked fine detail, but Henry recognized it immediately. This was the figure from his dream. With his massive humanoid body, glowing red eyes, octopus head, and bat wings, Cthulhu presents a distinctive visual image. And it's one that may have its roots in ancient Norwegian mythology. Considering his astronomical proportions and association with the sea, Cthulhu bears a striking resemblance to the infamous Kraken. We've covered the Kraken before on Mythical Monsters. Though accounts of this legendary sea monster vary, the one constant is an emphasis on the Kraken's enormous size. It's unclear how familiar Lovecraft was with the original Norwegian lore, but he definitely would have heard of Lord Alfred Tennyson's famous poem, The Kraken. One line in Tennyson's poem describes the Kraken as being in a state of ancient, dreamless, uninvaded sleep, a pointed parallel to Cthulhu, who waits and dreams in the deep. Lovecraft also drew on his own life experiences when crafting his weird fiction. In The Call of Cthulhu, a tremor occurs on February 28, 1925. It's the same day that Lovecraft recorded an account of a 6.2 magnitude earthquake that shook the American Northeast. Beyond that, there's the scene that occurs when Henry Wilcox takes his sculpture to be analyzed by an archaeologist. This scene was perhaps the story's greatest source of inspiration, and it was taken verbatim from a dream that Lovecraft had in May of 1920. It's significant that Lovecraft put these and other elements of his own life into his fiction, because it speaks to the deep personal importance that they held for him. Parts of the call of Cthulhu are literally taken straight from Lovecraft's subconscious, a place that was full of racial hatred, phobias and disgust. These are the feelings that create the overwhelming sense of inescapable dread that readers feel in Lovecraft's work. The same sense of dread that has come to define the genre of weird fiction as a whole. Henry knocked tentatively on the door of the professor's study and a voice called out for him to enter. He shivered as he stepped into the room, a chill hung in the air, despite the fire crackling in the old stone hearth. Dim winter sunlight filtered in through the diamond-paned windows, illuminating an elderly gentleman hunched over an old-fashioned roll-top desk. The professor greeted him and asked what his business was all without taking his eyes off the yellowed parchment he was examining. Henry produced the sculpture from beneath his coat. He told the man that he'd made it the previous night and was hoping that an expert could help him to decipher the hieroglyphs inscribed on it. The professor snorted and replied that he was an archeologist, not an art critic. He did not deal in new things. In a shy voice, Henry replied, it is new. I made it last night in a dream of strange cities, but dreams are older than the contemplative sphinx or garden-girdled Babylon." The professor looked up from his paper then. For a moment, Henry was afraid that the old man might order him out of his office. But when his eyes fell on the statue in Henry's hands, his expression changed the professor's mouth dropped open in a silent O, and his eyes widened in terror. The old man took a deep breath before motioning to a nearby leather chair and said in a trembling voice, you had better take a seat. When we return, the professor recounts his tale of terror.
0: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness.
1: Professor George Angel looked over the young man seated in front of him. He had a look of dreamy naivete about him. George had initially intended to dismiss him altogether, but he'd changed his mind as soon as he'd seen the clay figure in the lad's hands. The young man introduced himself as Henry Wilcox and then launched into his story. The night before, Henry had dreamed that he was wandering through an ancient city with a terrifying monster at its center. When he'd awoken, he was seated in his pottery studio, his hands covered in clay. He'd seen that his kiln was firing something, and when he'd gone to see what it was, he found the small clay figurine sitting inside. He handed it to the professor and asked if he recognized the writing. George turned the figure over and examined it from all sides. It had a vaguely anthropoid shape, but the head was something like that of an octopus. Thin wings sprouted from its back, and a mass of tube-like tentacles spilled from the place where its mouth should have been. He had recognized it immediately. He couldn't read the unfamiliar characters inscribed onto the base, but he believed he knew what they said. George told Henry that he'd better make himself comfortable. He had a long story to tell. It had happened many years ago when George was still a young man. He'd been conducting some research on a sunken ship off the coast of Australia when he'd uncovered an artifact that looked remarkably similar to the one that Henry Wilcox had created in his pottery studio. It was carved from a strange, greenish-black stone. Though he'd taken it to several well-respected geologists to identify the material, none had been able to reach a conclusion. One man had even guessed that the statue was carved from a substance that was not of this Earth. Whatever it was made of, George was thrilled with his discovery. Newspaper writers began contacting him with requests to hear more about the strange artifact. Someone from the university hinted that his grant funding might be extended, and he was even invited to dine at the palatial home of the lieutenant governor of New South Wales. Sadly, his good fortune did not last. Everything changed on the night of his dinner with Lieutenant Governor Legrasse. George had found the invitation a bit strange. He'd met the portly military man once before and hadn't gotten the impression that he was particularly interested in archaeology. Despite any misgivings, George had attended the dinner and dutifully answered the hail of questions lobbed at him by the Lieutenant Governor. He only drank a few glasses of wine, but somehow, by the time he left, George was stumbling about and slurring his words. As he neared the excavation site, he noticed something strange. The door to his laboratory had been left open. It was swinging back and forth in the evening breeze. George hurried up to the low stone building and ducked inside. Someone had knocked over the wooden crates full of artifacts. He began sorting through the wreckage and immediately saw that the majority of the artifacts had not been touched. The only thing that had been taken was the strange stone statue. It was after that night that the disappearances began. George might not have noticed if it hadn't been for the fact that the first to go was one of his own workmen. He was a promising young man by the name of Miro. When he didn't show up for work, George inquired with his friends and family, only to find that he hadn't been seen all weekend. The more people he spoke to, the more suspicious he became. Each family he questioned seemed to know someone else who had disappeared, just as Miro had. What was even more troubling was that every account George heard included an encounter with the same person. One woman disappeared while cleaning his house, another after running into him at the post office. A young man helped to trim his shrubs and was never seen again. As the disappearances piled up, it became very clear that they all revolved around one man, Lieutenant Governor Legrasse. Lovecraft's original Cthulhu stories were purposefully vague when it came to the being's backstory. We're told that Cthulhu was imprisoned thousands of years ago, somewhere beneath the South Pacific. He's described as one of the Great Old Ones, a mysterious race of ancient aliens who came to Earth before the dawn of man. Cthulhu himself is referred to as the High Priest of the Old Ones. What exactly that means is never explained. What is clear is that the Great Old Ones are trying to return, and Cthulhu is leading the charge. Cthulhu can't leave the underwater city of Rie, where he slumbers, but he has the ability to speak with humans through dreams. His telepathic abilities allow him to control the Cult of Cthulhu, a group of mysterious worshippers who are dedicated to his resurrection. It's no coincidence that every character of color in the original story is a worshipper of Cthulhu. Lovecraft describes them as men of a very low, mixed-blooded, and mentally aberrant type. He sees them as inherently strange and evil solely because they're different from him, and he reflects that strangeness in their god. As a gigantic, sea-dwelling monster from outer space, Cthulhu is nothing if not otherworldly his worshippers become otherworldly by association as they wait for the stars to align and the day when their god will rise from his watery prison and throw the earth into a state of violent chaos. George peered over the top of a purple mint bush, In the past few weeks, he'd heard tale after tale of villagers who went missing after encounters with Lieutenant Governor Legrasse. He knew there was something strange going on, and he intended to find out what it was. He watched as Legrasse stepped off the columned porch of his Georgian mansion and turned inland towards the red gum forests that surrounded the small seaside outpost. George followed Legrasse from a distance as he made his way through the dense jungle foliage towards the marshlands. George had heard rumors about a swamp on the eastern edge of the village. Some said that the land concealed a black lake inhabited by a monstrous, larvae-like beast with luminous red eyes. Legend had it that the creature had the power to infect men's dreams, pouring poison into their minds as they slept. George shivered and pulled his jacket tighter against the suddenly chilly evening. George walked for what felt like miles, Eventually, a thick fog rolled in and covered the marshlands in a shroud of white. He'd lost sight of La but at that point, it didn't matter. George could hear the sound of voices cutting through the mist. As he went deeper into the marsh, they became clearer. There were inhuman shouts and echoing screams, but below it all was the constant sound of chanting, the same phrase over and over again, growing, rising in pitch with each invocation. Ia, Ia, Cthulhu, Fhtagn. Finally, George reached a place where the mangrove trees ended in an expanse of flat, gray mud. The fog dissipated, giving him a clear view of LaGrasse's final destination. Ten scaffolds were set at intervals around the plane. On each scaffold, a mutilated corpse was strung up by its feet. George's stomach gave a sickening lurch when he recognized the face of his old friend, Miro. These were the missing persons he'd been seeking. George might have turned and run away then, were it not for his grim fascination with the scene in front of him. In the center was a great ring of flames encircling a group of frenzied worshippers. George recognized La among the writhing mass of acolytes. The group was a surging maelstrom of human flesh, moving all together around a great granite column. There was a small object sitting atop the monolith. For a moment, the flames parted and George caught a glimpse of it. It was his statue. His own discovery was the object of this demonic bacchanal. George felt bile rising in his throat. He squatted down in the mud and tried to calm himself. He knew he had to get away from that terrible place, but he suddenly felt as if his legs had turned to jelly. A single voice emerged from the cacophony of sound, making him glance back up at the sickening scene. George's heart skipped a beat. One figure stood motionless against the throng. It was a boy, perhaps no more than 15 years old. He was looking directly at George. As their eyes met, he raised a pointing finger and began to scream. George took off like a shot. The boy ran after him, tearing through the trees with the crazed energy of a rabid animal. George was running as fast as he could, but still the boy was gaining ground. It occurred to him that he might not be able to outrun the boy, but perhaps he could overpower him. George dug his heels into the soft earth and came to a tottering stop. He turned around just in time to catch the youth as he too hurtled to a halt. With a grunt and a thud, George tackled the young man, pinning him to the ground. Still breathless from the run, George managed to gasp out, who are you people? The boy's face contorted into the grin of a madman he told George that they were the cult of Cthulhu. They worshipped the Great Old Ones who had come from the sky eons ago. They were all dead now, buried under the earth, or at the bottom of the sea. George let the boy go. He stood up and began to back away, but the youth would not stop babbling. He said Cthulhu was entombed in his great city of R'lyeh but he spoke to men through dreams. He called them to worship him, and someday when the stars aligned, he would shake the earth and call on his faithful followers to help him rise again. Then they would revel in freedom, the freedom to be mad, to shout and burn and kill. George turned away from him and started running. The boy didn't follow him, There was no need. The screech of his laughter would follow George wherever he went for the rest of his life. Coming up, Henry discovers that knowledge can have terrible consequences. Now, back to the story. Henry rushed through the busy streets of Providence. He was anxious to get to Professor Angel's office so he could recount his most recent dream. Henry had met the professor several weeks ago. He'd awoken from a disturbing dream about ancient cities and giant monsters to find that in his sleep, he had crafted a small statue inscribed with indecipherable hieroglyphs. He'd gone to visit Professor Angel in the hopes that the old man might be able to help him understand the script. What he'd gotten instead was the most baffling and unbelievable story he'd ever heard. Professor Angel claimed that when he was young, he had unearthed an artifact that looked almost exactly like the one Henry had crafted in his sleep. The object was stolen by a murderous cult who worshipped a deity named Cthulhu. The cult was awaiting the day when the stars would align and Cthulhu would be awakened from his slumber. He would call out in dreams to his loyal followers, telling them to release him from his underwater prison so he could bring about the doom of all mankind. Professor Angel had become convinced that Henry's dream was a sign of this impending apocalypse. He had asked Henry to come to his office every time he had another of his strange dreams. Henry had gone to the old man's office every day since. Henry would recount his dreams to the old man, and then the professor would show him any new newspaper clippings that he dug up. These were usually accounts of panic, mania, delusion, and suicide. They were occurring with increasing frequency all around the globe. At first, Henry hadn't believed the professor's theory. But as time went on, it became harder to deny that there was something strange going on. When he'd left the old man's study the day before, Professor Angel had been deeply engrossed in charting underwater ocean currents. He wanted to determine the coordinates of the place where he believed Cthulhu would rise. Henry smiled at the memory of it. Whatever was happening, he couldn't see how it could have anything to do with a deserted spot in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Henry knocked several times before the door of the professor's study swung open of its own accord. He hesitated before entering the dimly lit room. It was unusual for Professor Angel not to answer on the first knock. Henry's heart began to race when he spotted the professor slumped over in his office chair. He rushed to the old man's side and took his hand. His pulse was weak, but it was still there. Professor Angel's eyelids were fluttering. Henry tried to tell him that he would be okay, that they would get him to a hospital, but the professor shook his head. In a breathless voice, he whispered a single hoarse word, poison. The old man clutched his face and looked into his eyes. With his last rasping breath, he said, you must stop them. He held out a scrap of paper in his tremulous hand. As Henry took it from him, Angel gave one last death rattle and closed his eyes. Henry looked at the paper. A set of numbers and letters were written in shaky handwriting. They were geographic coordinates. In the past 10 years, the character of Cthulhu has become something of a phenomenon. Today, he's been recreated in novels, comic books, films, and video games. But when the story was first printed, it was not particularly popular. Lovecraft never saw real critical or commercial success during his lifetime. He was never able to publish his stories outside the realm of pulpy horror magazines, and he died penniless at the age of 46. Though fame and fortune eluded him, Lovecraft did manage to amass a devoted following of fellow writers and fans. After his death, two of his close friends, August Derleth and Donald Wandre formed the publishing firm of Arkham House. They would go on to print the first published volumes of Lovecraft's stories. Arkham House also published a number of books that continued the narrative universe they referred to as the Cthulhu Mythos. Lovecraft and his friends would often trade mythic elements from their stories, and it's the spirit of collaboration that would eventually bring Cthulhu back into the public eye during the 1960s and 70s. In fact, much of the backstory of Cthulhu's world exists thanks to writers like August Derleth. Derleth was the one who divided Lovecraft's monsters into Elder Gods and the Great Old Ones. In Derleth's version of the Mythos, the Elder Gods are a benevolent race of alien deities who imprisoned Cthulhu and the other Great Old Ones under the Earth in order to keep them from destroying humanity. Modern authors have continued to expand on the Mythos, and today there are over a hundred different gigantic alien beings that belong to the race of Old Ones. Each one is a chaotic force of evil, capable of destroying the Earth. Some are described as festering blobs or cloudy masses, while others have a more humanoid appearance or resemble various sea creatures. The one thing they have in common is that they're all inherently incomprehensible to the human mind. For many, just laying eyes upon an old one is enough to send the viewer into a state of madness and delirium. The salty sea breeze blew back Henry's shaggy black hair as he stood at the bow of the ship. It had taken four long months, but he'd finally made it to the wide, empty stretch of ocean indicated in the professor's note. He'd made the long journey partly out of loyalty and a desire to honor an old man's dying wish. But also because of his own curiosity. He'd known that he wouldn't be able to rest easy until he could see this remote spot for himself. The steam yacht he had chartered had almost reached the location of the professor's coordinates. Soon, Henry would be quite satisfied that there was nothing at all for miles around. He could begin his journey home comfortable in the knowledge that he had honored the professor's final request. As the ship cut awake through the endless blue expanse, Henry noticed a small dot on the horizon. He asked the captain if he thought the object in the distance was a landmass, but the man just gave him a mysterious smile and said that they would find out soon enough. As the massive object rose up before them, Henry felt a wave of dread wash over him. It was just as he had seen it in his dream, a towering city of ancient stone built in a way that defied the laws of gravity and logic. As they came closer, Henry wanted to tell the captain to turn around and leave this cursed place. But just like in his dream, he was powerless to stop the strange force compelling him forward. The boat touched down on a set of enormous steps. Without a word between them, the men got out and began to climb. They made their way through the maddening jungle of stone forms. As they went, Henry noticed familiar symbols and inscriptions all around. Here and there, strange figures were carved into door frames and stone pillars. Scaly, fish-like faces surmounted vaguely humanoid bodies that ended in webbed amphibious claws. The men moved instinctively towards the temple at the center of the city. When they reached the enormous stone doors, Henry looked around at his hired crew. Some of them were grinning fiendishly, while others had begun to chuckle. The captain turned to the first mate. The four words he spoke made Henry's blood run cold. Ia, Ia, Cthulhu, Photogon. He said it once, then again. Then the first mate repeated it back to him. The other sailors began to join in until all the voices made a thundering chorus of hysterical chanting. It was this bone-chilling sound that finally broke Henry from his trance. He could see that the men were headed towards the doors. If he didn't stop them, they were going to release the creature. Henry dove at the first mate, pinning him to the ground and snatching the pistol from his hip. For a moment, the two men struggled with the gun, but Henry managed to keep hold of it. He aimed it at the chanting man, warning him not to move, but there was no sense left in his dull eyes. The first mate smiled blankly and continued making his way towards the door. Henry fired two shots into the man's legs. He stumbled forward and fell, but did not protest or cry out in pain. The man continued to drag himself closer to the door, leaving a trail of blood glistening against the gray stone. Henry ran past the prone man and began to shoot into the crowd of sailors pulling at the mammoth stone doors. They had already gotten them a crack open. Henry could smell the putrid stench of aged corpses seeping out of the ancient temple. The men seemed to be in an almost trance-like state. They showed no reaction as one by one Henry picked them off until only the captain was left. He fired his last shot into the man's back, dropped the gun and fled. As he hurtled between the massive stone buildings, he heard an unearthly slobbering sound. Henry did not stop to look behind him until he had made it to the boat. In Henry's dreams, Cthulhu had seemed massive, but in reality, his size was almost inconceivable. There was no animal on earth that large. A pair of glowing red eyes were set into the black recesses of the thing's face. Powerful muscles rippled beneath cracked leathery flesh and a mass of seething tentacles dripped with scum from a millennium of underwater sleep. The thing had massive, bat-like wings. When they started flapping, the wings made a low, thrumming sound that set Henry's teeth on edge. Cthulhu lifted into the air a mountain of moving flesh. When Cthulhu settled next to the boat... The stench of death and corruption filled the air like a thick fog. He leaned in to look at the yacht, his yellow eyes peering evilly into the cabin where Henry was huddled in terror. Henry jumped into action as a gargantuan claw reached for the ship. He reversed the ship's engine, ramming the stern into one of the monster's massive tentacles. The thing gave a gibbering shriek and backed away as a fountain of putrid green jelly erupted from its mouth. Henry sent the boat roaring full steam ahead into the open ocean. For a terrifying moment, Henry was afraid that Cthulhu might swim after him. But as the boat retreated, the glistening green tentacles sank beneath the waves. The island disappeared from sight. Whatever ritual was needed to release Cthulhu from his ancient prison, it had not been completed. But Henry knew that no one could keep the monster at bay forever. Eventually, Cthulhu would return. His city would rise again to the surface of the ocean, and he would awaken from his sleep to overthrow mankind. The Call of Cthulhu is one of the foundational texts for a literary subgenre known as cosmic horror, a category defined by its sheer scale. Usually cosmic horror features beings so unimaginably vast that resistance against them is entirely futile. Our human brains are unable to describe the size of a monster like Cthulhu or the shape of a city like Rie. In their presence, our lives are revealed to be unimaginably small and unimportant. If the universe contains such beings, then everything we thought we knew is rendered meaningless. It's a philosophy that borders on nihilism, but centers on our own insignificance in the face of cosmic enormity. Of course, a part of that sense of universal indifference stems from the vein of vitriolic racism embedded in the original stories. In those, Cthulhu's exceptional otherness is framed as abhorrent. While it's fascinating to ponder the possibility of things larger than ourselves, it's important to recognize the xenophobic roots of the disdain Lovecraft directed toward his monsters. Lovecraft's hateful beliefs are intrinsically enmeshed in his stories. The tales of Cthulhu included. But part of what people love about the monster and his mythos is that they have never stopped evolving. In the generations since Lovecraft's death, countless writers have continued to pilfer elements of his mythology for their own purposes, crafting countless new tales while adding to the mythos piece by piece. Instead of feeding into the hatred of the old stories, these later editions have the opportunity to right the wrongs of the past. To delve into the Cthulhu mythos is to take in the work of the hundreds of storytellers. The fact that the Cthulhu allows for this expansion shows just how deeply the creature has affected our collective psyche. He's a product of a universe of imaginations, a cosmos that is truly vast and unending. Today the Old Ones speak to our fascination with the incomprehensible. They seek to show us that the universe is far larger than our understanding of it. Our entire lives are but a moment to a monster like Cthulhu. And it's this insignificance that is truly terrifying. Thanks for listening to Mythical Monsters. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Lovecraft, amongst the many sources we used, we found Leslie Klinger's The New Annotated H.P. Lovecraft, and Philip Ailes' The Unlikely Reanimation of H.P. Lovecraft, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast Originals, like Mythical Monsters, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Mythical Monsters on Spotify, just open the app and type Mythical Monsters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Mythical Monsters was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Mythical Monsters was written by Zoe Luisa Lewis, with writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Vanessa Richardson.